Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading chapters 17 and 18 of the life and achievements of Don Quixote de La Mancha. Don Quixote is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 17 Of the new and agreeable adventure that befell the priest and the barber and of the beautiful Dorothea. Alas, is it possible that I have at last found out a place which will afford a private grave to this miserable body whose load I so repine to bear? Yes, if the silence and solitude of these deserts do not deceive me, here I may die concealed from human eyes. Ah me! Ah wretched creature! To what extremity has affliction driven me? reduced to think these hideous woods and rocks a kind retreat. It is true, indeed, I may here freely complain to heaven and beg for that relief which I might ask in vain of false mankind, for it is vain, I find, to seek below either counsel, ease, or remedy. The curate and his company, hearing all this distinctly and conceiving they must be near the person who thus expressed his grief rose to find him out. They had not gone above twenty paces before they spied a youth in a country habit sitting at the foot of a rock behind an ash tree, but they could not well see his face being bowed almost upon his knees as he sat washing his feet in a rivulet that glided by. They approached him so softly that he did not perceive them and as he was gently paddling in the clear water. They had time to discern that his legs were as white as alabaster and so taper, so curiously proportioned and so fine that nothing of the kind could appear more beautiful. Our observers were amazed at this discovery, rightly imagining that such tender feet were not used to trudge in rugged ways or measure the steps of oxen at the plow, the common employments of people in such apparel, and therefore the curate who went before the rest whose curiosity was heightened by this sight, beckoned to them to step aside and hide themselves behind some of the little rocks that were by, which they did, and from thence making a stricter observation, they found he had on. A grey double-skirted jerkin girt tight about his body with a linen towel. He wore also a pair of breeches and gamashes of grey cloth 
and a grey huntsman's cap on his head. His gamashes were now pulled up to the middle of his leg, which really seemed to be of snowy alabaster. Having made an end of washing his beauteous feet, he immediately wiped them with a handkerchief which he pulled out from under his cap and with that looking up, he discovered so charming a face, so accomplished a beauty that Cardinio could not forbear saying to the curate that since this was not Lucinda, it was certainly no human form but an angel. And then the youth taking off his cap and shaking his head an incredible quantity of lovely hair flowed down upon his shoulders and not only covered them but almost all his body by which they were now convinced that what they at first took to be a country lad was a young woman and one of the most beautiful creatures in the world. Cardinio was not less surprised than the other two and once more declared that no face could vie with hers but Lucinda's. To part her disheveled tresses she only used her slender fingers and at the same time discovered so fine a pair of arms and hands so white and lovely that our three admiring gazers grew more impatient to know who she was and moved forward to accost her. At the noise they made, the pretty creature started and peeping through her hair which she hastily removed from before her eyes with both her hands, she no sooner saw three men coming towards her but in a mighty fright she snatched up a little bundle that lay by her and fled as fast as she could without so much as staying to put on her shoes or do up her hair. But, alas, scarce had she gone six steps when, her tender feet not being able to endure the rough encounter of the stones, the poor affrighted fair fell on the hard ground so that those from whom she fled hastened to help her. Stay, madam, cried the curate, Whoever you be, you have no reason to fly, we have no other design but to do you service. With that, approaching her, he took her by the hand, and perceiving she was so disordered with fear and confusion that she could not answer a word, he strove to compose her mind with kind expressions. Be not afraid, madam, continued he, though your hair has betrayed what your disguise concealed from us. We are but the more disposed to assist you and do you all manner of service. Then pray tell us how we may best do it. I imagine it was no slight occasion that made you obscure your singular beauty under so unworthy a disguise and venture into this desert where it was the greatest chance in the world that ever you met with us. However. We hope it is not impossible to find a remedy for your misfortunes since there are none which reason and time will not at last surmount and therefore, madam, if you have not absolutely renounced all human comfort, I beseech you to tell us the cause of your affliction and assure yourself we do not ask this out of mere curiosity but from a real desire to serve you and assuage your grief. While the curate endeavored thus to remove the trembling fair one's apprehension, she stood amazed, without speaking a word, looking sometimes at one, sometimes at another, like one scarce well awake, or like an ignorant clown who happens to see some strange sight. But at last, the curate having given her time to recollect herself, and persisting in his earnest and civil entreaties, she sighed deeply, and then unclosing her lips, broke silence in the following manner, since this desert has not been able to conceal me, it would be needless now for me to dissemble with you, 
and since you desire to hear the story of my misfortunes, I cannot in civility deny you, after all the obliging offers you have been pleased to make me, but yet, gentlemen, I am much afraid what I have to say will but make you sad and afford you little satisfaction, for you will find my disasters are not to be remedied. There is one thing that troubles me yet more. It shocks my nature to think I must be forced to reveal to you some secrets which I had a design to have buried in my grave, but yet, considering the garb and the place you have found me in, I fancy it will be better for me to tell you all than to give occasion to doubt of my past conduct and my present designs by an affected reservedness. The disguised lady having made this answer with a modest blush and extraordinary discretion, the curate and his company, who now admired her the more for her sense, renewed their kind offers and pressing solicitations, and then they courteously let her retire a moment to some distance to put herself in decent order. Which done she returned, and, being all seated on the grass, after she had used no small effort to restrain her tears, she thus began her story. I was born in a certain town of Andalusia, from which a duke takes his title that makes him a grandee of Spain. This duke had two sons, the eldest heir to his estate, and, as it may be presumed, of his virtues, the youngest heir to nothing I know of but treachery and deceitfulness. My father, who is one of his vassals, is but of low degree, but so very rich, that had fortune equaled his birth to his estate, he could have wanted nothing more, and I, perhaps, had never been so miserable, for I verily believe my not being of noble blood is the chief occasion of my distress. True it is, my parents are not so meanly born as to have any cause to be ashamed, nor so high as to alter the opinion I have that my misfortune proceeds from their lowness. It is true, they have been farmers from father to son, yet without any scandal or stain. They are honest old-fashioned Christian Spaniards, and the antiquity of their family, together with their large possessions, raises them much above their profession, and has by little and little almost universally gained them the name of gentlemen, setting them, in a manner, equal to many such in the world's esteem. As I am their only child, they loved me with the utmost tenderness, and their great affection made them esteem themselves happier in their daughter than in the peaceable enjoyment of their large estate. Now, as it was my good fortune to be possessed of their love, they were pleased to trust me with their substance. The whole house and estate was left to my management, and I took such care not to abuse the trust reposed in me that I never forfeited their good opinion of my discretion. The time I had to spare from the care of the family I employed in the usual exercises of young women, sometimes making bone lace, or at my needle, and now and then reading some good book, or playing on the harp, having experienced that music was very proper to recreate the wearied mind. While I thus lived the life of a recluse, unseen, as I thought, by anybody but our own family, and never leaving the house but to go to church, which was commonly betimes in the morning, and always with my mother, and so close hid in a veil that I could scarce find my way, notwithstanding all the care that was taken to keep me from being seen, it was unhappily rumored abroad that I was handsome, and to my eternal disquiet, 
Love intruded into my peaceful retirement. Don Fernando, second son to the Duke I have mentioned, had a save me scarce had Cardinio heard Don Fernando named, but he changed color and betrayed such a disorder of body and mind that the curate and the barber were afraid he would have fallen into one of those frantic fits that often used to take him, but, by good fortune, it did not come to that, and he only set himself to look steadfastly on the country maid, presently guessing who she was, while she continued her story without taking any notice of the alteration of his countenance. No sooner had he seen me, said she, but, as he since told me, he felt in his breast that violent passion of which he afterwards gave me so many proofs. He purchased the goodwill of all our servants with private gifts, made my father a thousand kind offers of service, every day seemed a day of rejoicing in our neighborhood, every evening ushered in some serenade, and the continual music was even a disturbance in the night. He got an infinite number of love letters transmitted to me, I do not know by what means, every one full of tender expressions, promises, and vows. But all this assiduous courtship was so far from inclining my heart to a kind return that it rather moved my indignation, insomuch that I looked upon Don Fernando as my greatest enemy, not but that I was well enough pleased with his gallantry and took a secret delight in seeing myself courted by a person of his quality. Such demonstrations of love are never altogether displeasing to women, and the most disdainful, in spite of all their coyness, reserve a little complacence in their hearts for their admirers. But the inequality between us was too great to suffer me to entertain any reasonable hopes, and his gallantry too singular not to offend me. My father, who soon put the right construction upon Don Fernando's pretensions, like a kind parent, perceiving I was somewhat uneasy, and imagining the flattering prospect of so advantageous a match might still amuse me, told me that if I would marry, to rid me at once of his unjust pursuit, I should have liberty to make my own choice of a suitable match either in our own town or the neighborhood, and that he would do for me whatever could be expected from a loving father. I humbly thanked him for his kindness and told him that as I had never yet had any thoughts of marriage, I would try to rid myself of Don Fernando some other way. Accordingly, I resolved to shun him with so much precaution that he should never have the opportunity to speak to me, but all my reserve, far from tiring out his passion, strengthened it the more. In short, Don Fernando, either hearing or suspecting I was to be married, thought of a contrivance to cross a design that was likely to cut off all his hopes. One night, therefore, when I was in my chamber, nobody with me but my maid, and the door double locked and bolted, that I might be secured against the attempts of Don Fernando, whom I took to be a man who would scruple at nothing to accomplish his ends, unexpectedly I saw him just before me, which amazing sight so surprised me that I was struck dumb and fainted away with fear. I had not power to call for help, nor do I believe he would have given me time to have done it had I attempted it, for he presently ran to me and taking me in his arms, while I was sinking with the fright, he spoke to me in such endearing terms and with so much address and pretended tenderness and sincerity 
that I did not dare to cry out when I came to myself. His sighs, and yet more his tears, seemed to me undeniable proofs of his vowed integrity, and I being but young, bred up in perpetual retirement from all society but my virtuous parents, and inexperienced in those affairs, in which even the most knowing are apt to be mistaken, my reluctancy abetted by degrees, and I began to have some sense of compassion. However, when I was pretty well recovered from my first fright, my former resolution returned, and then, with more courage than I thought I should have had, my lord, said I, if at the same time that you offer me your love, and give me such strange demonstrations of it, you would also offer me poison and leave me to take my choice, I would soon resolve which to accept, and convince you by my death that my honor is dearer to me than my life. To be plain, I can have no good opinion of a presumption that endangers my reputation, and unless you leave me this moment, I will so effectually make you know how much you are mistaken in me, that if you have but the least sense of honor left, you will regret driving me to that extremity as long as you live. I was born your vassal, but not your slave, nor does the greatness of your birth privilege you to injure your inferiors, or exact from me more than the duties which all vassals pay, that accepted, I do not esteem myself less in my low degree than you have reason to value yourself in your high rank. Do not, then, think to awe or dazzle me with your grandeur, or fright or force me into a base compliance, I am not to be tempted with titles, pomp, and equipage, nor weak enough to be moved with vain sighs and false tears. In short, my will is wholly at my father's disposal, and I will not entertain any man as a lover but by his appointment. What do you mean, charming Dorothea? cried the perfidious lord. Cannot I be yours by the sacred title of husband? Who can hinder me, if you will, but consent to bless me on those terms? I am yours this moment, beautiful Dorothea, I give you here my hand to be yours, and yours alone, forever, and let all seeing heaven, and this holy image here on your oratory, witness the solemn truth. In short, urged by his solicitations, I became his wife but not long afterwards he left me, I knew not whither. Months passed away, and in vain I watched for his coming, yet he was in the town, and every day amusing himself with hunting. What melancholy days and hours were those to me! I long strove to hide my tears and so to guard my looks that my parents might not see and inquire into the cause of my wretchedness, but suddenly my forbearance was at an end, with all regard to delicacy and fame, upon the intelligence reaching me that Don Fernando was married in a neighboring town to a beautiful young lady of some rank and fortune named Lucinda. Cardinio heard the name of Lucinda at first only with signs of indignation, but soon after a flood of tears burst from his eyes. Dorothea, however, pursued her story, saying, when the sad news reached my ears, my heart became so inflamed with rage that I could scarcely forbear rushing into the streets and proclaiming the baseness and treachery I had experienced, but I became more tranquil after forming a project which I executed the same night. I borrowed this apparel of a shepherd swain in my father's service, whom I entrusted with my secret 
and begged him to attend me in my pursuit of Don Fernando. He assured me it was a rash undertaking, but finding me resolute, he said he would go with me to the end of the world. Immediately, I packed up some of my own clothes with money and jewels and at night secretly left the house, attended only by my servant and a thousand anxious thoughts, and traveled on foot to the town where I expected to find my husband impatient to arrive, if not in time to prevent his perfidy, to reproach him for it. I inquired where the parents of Lucinda lived, and the first person to whom I addressed myself told me more than I desired to hear. He told me also that on the night that Don Fernando was married to Lucinda, after she had pronounced the fatal yes, she fell into a swoon, and the bridegroom, in unclasping her bosom to give her air, found a paper written by herself, in which she affirmed that she could not be wife to Don Fernando, because she was already betrothed to Cardinio, who, as the man told me, was a gentleman of the same town and that she had pronounced her assent to Don Fernando merely in obedience to her parents. The paper also revealed her intention to kill herself as soon as the ceremony was over, which was confirmed by a poniard they found concealed upon her. Don Fernando was so enraged to find himself thus mocked and slighted that he seized hold of the same poniard and would certainly have stabbed her had he not been prevented by those present, whereupon he immediately quitted the place. When Lucinda revived, she confessed to her parents the engagement she had formed with Cardinio, who, it was suspected, had witnessed the ceremony and had hastened from the city in despair, for he left a paper expressing his sense of the wrong he had suffered and declaring his resolution to fly from mankind forever. All this was publicly known and the general subject of conversation, especially when it appeared that Lucinda also was missing from her father's house a circumstance that overwhelmed her family with grief, but revived my hopes, for I flattered myself that heaven had thus interposed to prevent the completion of Don Fernando's second marriage in order to touch his conscience and restore him to a sense of duty and honor. In this situation, undecided what course to take, I instantly left the city and at night took refuge among these mountains. I engaged myself in the service of a shepherd and have lived for some months among these wilds, always endeavoring to be abroad, lest I should betray myself. Yet all my care was to no purpose, for my master at length discovered my secret. Lest I might not always find means at hand to free myself from insult, I sought for security in flight and have endeavored to hide myself among these rocks. Here, with incessant sighs and tears, I implore heaven to have pity on me and either alleviate my misery or put an end to my life in this desert that no traces may remain of so wretched a creature. Chapter 18 Which treats of the beautiful Dorothea's discretion with other particulars. This, gentlemen, added Dorothea, is my tragical story, think whether the sighs and tears which you have witnessed have not been more than justified. My misfortunes, as you will confess, are incapable of a remedy, and all I desire of you is to advise me how to live without the continual dread of being discovered, for although I am certain of a kind reception from my parents, 
so overwhelmed am I with shame that I choose rather to banish myself forever from their sight than appear before them the object of such hateful suspicions. Here she was silent, while her blushes and confusion sufficiently manifested the shame and agony of her soul. Her auditors were much affected by her tale, and the curate was just going to address her when Cardinio interrupted him, saying, You, madam, then, are the beautiful Dorothea, only daughter of the rich Clenardo. Dorothea stared at hearing her father named by such a miserable-looking object, and she asked him who he was, since he knew her father. I am that hapless Cardinio, he replied, who suffer from the base author of your misfortunes, reduced, as you now behold, to nakedness and misery deprived even of reason. Yes, Dorothea, I heard that fatal yes uttered by Lucinda, and, unable to bear my anguish, fled precipitately from her house. Amidst these mountains I thought to have terminated my wretched existence, but the account you have just given has inspired me with hope that heaven may still have happiness in store for us. Lucinda has avowed herself to be mine, and therefore cannot wed another, Don Fernando, being yours, cannot have Lucinda. Let us then, my dear lady, indulge the hope that we may both yet recover our own, since it is not absolutely lost. Indeed, I swear that, although I leave it to heaven to avenge my own injuries, your claims I will assert, nor will I leave you until I have obliged Don Fernando, either by argument or by my sword, to do you justice. Dorothea would have thrown herself at the feet of Cardinio to express her gratitude to him had he not prevented her. The licentiate, too, commended his generous determination and entreated them both to accompany him to his village where they might consult on the most proper measures to be adopted in the present state of their affairs, a proposal to which they thankfully acceded. The barber, who had hitherto been silent, now joined in expressing his good wishes to them. He also briefly related the circumstances which had brought them to that place, and when he mentioned the extraordinary insanity of Don Quixote, Cardinio had an indistinct recollection of having had some altercation with the knight, though he could not remember whence it arose. They were now interrupted by the voice of Sancho Panza, who, not finding them where he left them, began to call out loudly. They went instantly to meet him and were eager in their inquiries after Don Quixote. He told them that he had found him half dead with hunger, sighing for his lady Dulcinea, and that he positively would not appear before her beauty until he had performed exploits that might render him worthy of her favor, so they must consider what was to be done to get him away. The licentiate begged him not to give himself any uneasiness on that account, for they should certainly contrive to get him out of his present retreat. The priest then informed Cardinio and Dorothea of their plan for Don Quixote's cure, or at least for decoying him to his own house. Upon which Dorothea said she would undertake to act the distressed damsel better than the barber, especially as she had apparel with which she could perform it to the life, and they might have reliance upon her, as she had read many books of chivalry and was well acquainted with the style in which distressed damsels were wont to beg their boons of knights errant. 
Let us, then, hasten to put our design into execution, exclaimed the curate, since fortune seems to favor all our views. Dorothea immediately took from her bundle a petticoat of very rich stuff and a mantle of fine green silk, and, out of a casket, a necklace and other jewels, with which she quickly adorned herself in such a manner that she had all the appearance of a rich and noble lady. They were charmed with her beauty, grace, and elegance, and agreed that Don Fernando must be a man of little taste, since he could slight so much excellence. But her greatest admirer was Sancho Panza, who thought that in all his life he had never seen so beautiful a creature, and he earnestly desired the priest to tell him who that handsome lady was, and what she was looking for in those parts. This beautiful lady, friend Sancho, answered the priest, is, to say the least of her, heiress in the direct male line of the great kingdom of my Comic-Con, and she comes in quest of your master to beg a boon of him, which is to redress a wrong or injury done her by a wicked giant, for it is the fame of your master's prowess, which is spread over all Guinea, that has brought this princess to seek him. Now, a happy seeking and a happy finding, quoth Sancho Panza, especially if my master is so fortunate as to redress that injury and right that wrong by killing the giant you mention, and kill him he certainly will if he encounters him unless he be a goblin, for my master has no power at all over goblins. Dorothea now having mounted the priest's mule and the barber fitted on the oxtail beard, they desired Sancho to conduct them to Don Quixote, cautioning him not to say that he knew the licentiate or the barber, since on that depended all his fortune. The priest would have instructed Dorothea in her part, but she would not trouble him, assuring him that she would perform it precisely according to the rules and precepts of chivalry. Having proceeded about three quarters of a league, they discovered Don Quixote in a wild, rocky recess, at that time not armed. Dorothea now whipped on her palfrey, attended by the well-bearded squire, and having approached the knight, her squire leaped from his mule to assist his lady, who, lightly dismounting, went and threw herself at Don Quixote's feet, where, in spite of his efforts to raise her, she remained kneeling as she thus addressed him. I will never arise from this place, O valorous and redoubt knight, until your goodness and courtesy vouchsafe me a boon, which will redound to the honor and glory of your person, and to the lasting benefit of the most disconsolate and aggrieved damsel the sun has ever beheld. And if the valor of your puissant arm correspond with the report of your immortal fame, you are bound to protect an unhappy white, who, attracted by the odor of your renown, has come from distant regions to seek at your hands a remedy for her misfortunes. It is impossible for me to answer you, fair lady, said Don Quixote, while you remain in that posture. I will not arise, senior, answered the afflicted damsel, until your courtesy shall vouchsafe the boon I ask. I do vouchsafe and grant it you, answered Don Quixote, provided my compliance be of no detriment to my king, my country, or to her who keeps the key of my heart and liberty. It will not be to the prejudice of any of these, dear sir, replied the afflicted damsel. 
Sancho, now approaching his master, whispered softly in his ear, Your worship may very safely grant the boon she asks, for it is a mere trifle, only to kill a great lubberly giant. Whosoever the lady may be, answered Don Quixote, I shall act as my duty and my conscience dictate, in conformity to the rules of my profession, then addressing himself to the damsel, he said, Fairest lady, arise, for I vouchsafe you whatever boon you ask. My request, then, is, said the damsel, that your magnanimity will go whither I shall conduct you, and that you will promise not to engage in any other adventure until you have avenged me on a traitor who, against all right, human and divine, has usurped my kingdom. I grant your request, answered Don Quixote, and therefore, lady, dispel that melancholy which oppresses you, and let your fainting hopes recover fresh life and strength, for you shall soon be restored to your kingdom, and seated on the throne of your ancient and high estate, in despite of all the miscreants who would oppose it, and therefore we will instantly proceed to action, for there is always danger in delay. The distressed damsel would fain have kissed his hands, but Don Quixote, making her arise, embraced her with much politeness and respect, and ordered Sancho to look after Rosinante's girths and to assist him to arm. Sancho took down the armor from a tree where it hung, and having got Rosinante ready, quickly armed his master, who then cried, in God's name, let us hasten to succor this fair lady. The barber was still upon his knees and under much difficulty to forbear laughing and keep his beard from falling, but seeing that the boon was already granted and Don Quixote prepared to fulfill his engagement, he got up and took his lady by the other hand when they both assisted to place her upon the mule and then mounted themselves. Cardinio and the priest, concealed among the bushes, had observed all that passed and being now desirous to join them, the priest, who had a ready invention, soon hit upon an expedient, for with a pair of scissors which he carried in a case, he quickly cut off Cardinio's beard, then put him on a grey capoach, and gave him his own black cloak, which so changed his appearance that had he looked in a mirror he would not have known himself. They waited in the plain until Don Quixote and his party came up, whereupon the curate, after gazing for some time earnestly at him, at last ran towards him with open arms, exclaiming aloud, Happy is this meeting, O thou mirror of chivalry, my noble countryman, Don Quixote de la Mancha. The flower and cream of gentility, the protector of suffering mankind, the quintessence of knight errantry. Having thus spoken, he embraced Don Quixote by the knee of his left leg. The knight was surprised at this address, but after attentively surveying the features of the speaker, he recognized him and would immediately have alighted, but the priest would not suffer it. You must permit me to alight, senior licentiate, said Don Quixote, for it would be very improper that I should remain on horseback while so irreverend a person as you are traveling on foot. I will by no means consent to your dismounting replied the priest, since on horseback you have achieved the greatest exploits this age hath witnessed. As for myself, an unworthy priest, 
I shall be satisfied if one of these gentlemen of your company will allow me to mount behind him, and I shall then fancy myself mounted on Pegasus, or on a zebra, or the sprightly courser best rode by the famous Mormozark, who lies to this day enchanted in the great mountain Zulema, not far distant from the Grand Compluto. I did not think of that, dear senior licentiate, said Don Quixote, and I know her highness the princess will, for my sake, order her squire to accommodate you with the saddle of his mule, and he may ride behind, if the beast will carry double. I believe she will, answered the princess, and I know it is unnecessary for me to lay my commands upon my squire for he is too courteous and well-bred to suffer an ecclesiastic to go on foot when he may ride. Most certainly, answered the barber, and alighting in an instant, he complimented the priest with the saddle, which he accepted without much entreaty. But it unluckily happened that as the barber was getting upon the mule, which was a vicious jade, she threw up her hind legs twice or thrice into the air, and had they met with Master Nicholas's breast or head he would have wished his rambling after Don Quixote far enough. He was, however, thrown to the ground, and so suddenly that he forgot to take due care of his beard, which fell off, and all he could do was to cover his face with both hands and cry out that his jawbone was broken. Don Quixote, seeing such a mass of beard without jaws and without blood lying at a distance from the fallen squire, exclaimed, Heavens! What a miracle! His beard has fallen as clean from his face as if he had been shaven. The priest, seeing the danger of discovery, instantly seized the beard and ran to Master Nicholas, who was still on the ground moaning and going up close to him, with one twitch replaced it, muttering over him some words, which he said were a specific charm for fixing on beards, as they should soon see, and when it was adjusted, the squire remained as well bearded and as whole as before. Don Quixote was amazed at what he saw, and begged the priest to teach him that charm, for he was of opinion that its virtue could not be confined to the refixing of beards and since it wrought a perfect cure, it must be valuable upon other occasions. The priest said that his surmise was just and promised to take the first opportunity of teaching him the art. Don Quixote, the princess, and the priest, being thus mounted, attended by Cardenio, the barber, and Sancho Panza on foot, Don Quixote said to the damsel, Your Highness will now be pleased to lead on in whatever direction you please. Before she could reply, the licentiate interposing said, whither would your ladyship go? To the kingdom of my Comic-Con, I presume, or I am much mistaken. She, being aware that she was to answer in the affirmative, said, yes, senior, that kingdom is indeed the place of my destination. If so, said the priest, we must pass through my native village, and thence you must go straight to Carthagena, where you may embark, and if you have a fair wind, a smooth sea, and no storms, in somewhat less than nine years you will get within view of the great Lake Miona, I mean Miotis, which is not more than a hundred days journey from your highness's territories. You are mistaken, good sir, said she, for it is not two years since I left it, 
and although I had very bad weather during the whole passage, here I am, and I have beheld what so ardently I desired to see Senior Don Quixote de la Mancha, the fame of whose valor reached my ears the moment I set foot in Spain, and determined me upon seeking him, that I might appeal to his courtesy, and commit the justice of my cause to the valor of his invincible arm. Cease, I pray, these encomiums, said Don Quixote, for I am an enemy to every species of flattery, and even if this be not such, still are my chaste ears offended at this kind of discourse. All I can say, dear madam, is that my powers, such as they are, shall be employed in your service even at the forfeit of my life, but waiving these matters for the present, I beg the senior licentiate to tell me what has brought him into these parts alone, unattended, and so lightly apparelled. I can soon satisfy your worship, answered the priest, our friend, Master Nicholas, and I were going to Seville to receive a legacy left me by a relation in India, and knowing considerable sum, being sixty thousand crowns, and on our road, yesterday, we were attacked by four highway robbers who stripped us of all we had, to our very beards, and in such a manner that the barber thought it expedient to put on a false one. As for this youth here, pointing to Cardinio, you see how they have treated him. It is publicly reported here that those who robbed us were galley slaves, set at liberty near this very place, by a man so valiant that in spite of the commissary and his guards he released them all, but he must certainly have been out of his senses, or as great a rogue as any of them, since he could let loose wolves among sheep, foxes among poultry, and wasps among the honey, for he has defrauded justice of her due, and has set himself up against his king and natural lord by acting against his lawful authority. He has, I say, disabled the galleys of their hands, and disturbed the many years repose of the Holy Brotherhood. In a word, he has done a deed by which his body may suffer, and his soul be forever lost. Sancho had communicated the adventure of the galley slaves, so gloriously achieved by his master, and the priest laid it on thus heavily to see what effect it would have upon Don Quixote, whose color changed at every word, and he dared not confess that he had been the deliverer of those worthy gentlemen, 